We are in the book of Acts as we continue the episodes in evangelism uh, that we have uh, looked at this summer on Sunday evenings. And we're in chapter 17, skipped over uh, chapter 17 a week or two ago because it's a two-part message. The true and living God is knowable. Now, I want you to believe that, and you do believe it, but I want you to be reminded of that in your evangelism, that people truly can still be saved, amen, (laughs) or else our labor is in vain. But Scripture says our labor is not in vain in the Lord. I'm convinced that Satan uses religion to his advantage more than any other aspect in culture in society more than alcohol more than drugs more than crime more than perversion he uses religion and that's because everyone is religious not everyone is wholly given over to alcohol not everyone is uh, swallowed up in perversion not everyone is a criminal in the sense of needing to do time But everyone has an affinity for the supernatural. Even the so-called atheist has a belief system. I believe in nothing. Well, you're banking your eternal soul on that religion, on that belief. Uh, Humanism, the religion of making man his own God. Man will figure it out and we'll reach uh, nirvana. We'll reach um, some point of... uh, where everything is, all the world shall be. Just imagine there wasn't any religion. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. But one of these days, we're going to figure it out, and the world will live as one. See, people, (laughs) some of you who have ears to hear know of which I speak, right? Uh, The world is religious. And the city of Athens was certainly very much like that. In the midst, wholly given over to idolatry, paganism, indifference toward orthodox theology, in the midst of that, we see God gave the narrative that the true and living God can be known. He is knowable. Let's look at the text, if, we, if you would, in Acts 17, verses 15 through 23. It's so much quantity of material, they're only going to look at part one this evening, Lord willing, part two next Sunday evening, beginning in verse 15 of chapter 17. And they that conducted Paul brought him, that is, who who escorted him, brought him unto Athens, and receiving commandment, giving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now Now while Paul waited for them at Athens... His spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? Others, he seemeth to be a center forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine of which thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. 
For all the Athenians and strangers who were, who were there spent their time in nothing else but to either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him do I, I declare I unto you. <clears throat> Arguably, the three most important cities in Paul's day were Jerusalem, the religious capital of the world, and when he was in and around that area, he preached the law. Rome, the political capital of the world, and when he was there, he appealed to Caesar to be able to get Caesar's ear. And when he was in Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, he spoke to them about the true living God, introducing him on their level, and then, of course, taking them to a complete, full presentation of the gospel. You know, in Solomon's day, the dedicatory prayer in the temple, and his desire was that all people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee. Now, if that prayer was offered in the temple, and it was included in Scripture, it follows that that is an answerable prayer. That is, certainly the Lord desires to be known among the nations, to be known among the people of the world. And so, we present a gospel of the true and living God who is knowable, and aren't you thankful that he's knowable? Amen? Isn't it, have, you, uh, have you ever pondered and wondered and been awestruck that the Lord allowed you uh, to be born in Western civilization late in time when uh, uh, communication, mass communication was available, mass communication meaning pa- after the printing press, uh, and then telephonically and now uh, internet and the, and the rest, put you uh, in a place, either through family or through geographical location, somehow he providentially moved and directed your life so that you would intersect with the gospel and be saved. Has it ever occurred to you that that is an amazing thing? <laughs> I find that to be amazing. Uh, 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 Brother Bob, what was it? what's your phrase? You haven't got, you got saved and you haven't gotten over it. Is that what you say? <laughs> I haven't gotten over it yet. Still amazed by his grace, more so now than the first day of salvation. Because he is a God who is knowable in a very real and not knowable in a in a ethereal sense, but knowable in a personal sense. A couple of points if you're taking notes in this passage. First of all, we see the passionate heart of the apostle. And you can just put of the Christian because that's what it ought to be. Verses 15 through 17, 22 and 23. Paul was convinced that God is knowable. He had received Christ and he gave his life to telling others. That's who he was. That's what he was about. And as I shared this morning, why did he do that? Well, he did it because he was an apostle. No. He did it because he believed scripture. No, that's not why he did it. Of course, those were true. But he did it because he was saved, because the Lord had come into his life, transformed him, changed him, gave him a new nature, created in righteousness and true holiness, 
and he had to let it out. He had to tell someone, and in fact, uh, uh, he did uh, tell others. And so, Paul is the, um, is the poster child for how I ought to be, how you ought to be, in having that heart for the lost. Uh, this passage is used by some uh, to say, well, we, uh, we need to put on the trappings of the world in order to help them relate and the rest. Paul did not compromise one iota in presenting the gospel. He, in fact, they said to him, you are sharing an unusual thing. We've not heard this about some Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Clearly, he was not compromising. Uh, he was not a seeker-friendly evangelist or pastor, but one who presented the truth of Scripture. You know, believers, genuine believers, have a love for Christ. I mean, he gave his life for us. We even uh, like being together, most of us, a whole lot. We do like to come together. But it seems uh, like uh, it is becoming more and more rare to see a believer who truly has a passion, a hunger, a thirst for seeing the lost converted. Oh, to be like the Apostle Paul, that he went to, into a pagan, the pagan city, the philosophical capital of the world, with the intellectuals there, that they didn't want to do anything but hear some new thing or tell some new thing to one another. And he confronted them passionately with the gospel. Now notice, Paul's response to Athens, a city wholly given to idolatry. It was not, he wasn't intrigued by it. He, he wasn't tempted by it or anything such as that. He wasn't enticed by it. He was grieved by it. Grieved because God was blasphemed. Uh, the people were duped by the enemy. They're, they were headed toward hell. There was no victory, no joy, no satisfaction uh, because false, falsehood cannot bring freedom. Only the truth can set you free. And his heart was grieved. What was his response? Well, notice in verse 16, if you will, that when Paul waited for them, his spirit was stirred. It's the word for provoke, agitated. It's the very same word in Hebrews 10, 24, uh, that we're to provoke one another unto love and good works. He was provoked. He was agitated, stirred in his soul over the lost condition of the people there. Now, a believer, every believer's heart should be stirred for the lost. And I, I count myself in, in that group. I need to be stirred, agitated for the condition of the lost. And how will it be manifested, at least from our passage? I'm not saying this is the totality of it, but certainly we see this in our passage. First of all, we see in verses 15 and first part of verse 16 that the believer must be steadfastly available. That is, moment by moment, while we're serving him, while we're living for him, I need to be ready just in a moment's notice to communicate the gospel, to share uh, the, uh, the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus. No matter what the circumstance, no matter what the situation, you know, I've come to uh, appreciate that in a fresh and new way, uh, being married to Kathy whenever we travel, 
I may have sh- shared this. And we, uh, we're, we're in the go-go phase, phase of life. When you're a senior adult, uh, and I'm a very young senior, you have the go-go phase, the slow-go phase, and then the no-go phase. Uh, I, I am in the, but, but the thing is, for us, the no-go phase is truncated down to about a day. <laughs> the slow-go is tr- down to about a week. The rest of the time is going to be go-go phase. So we are, uh, you know, in, in uh, our six years of marriage, uh, I have been in more airplanes and flown more uh, than I think all the rest of my life combined. And I was in the Air Force <laughs> after the Navy. So that's saying something. But here's what it is. We didn't do this strategically. Mark, this is bothering me. You threw this, this lifesaver on the ground uh, this morning. So there it is. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to step on it. And knowing me, because of my ankle, I'll slip and I'll rip my Achilles tendon and have to go back to surgery tonight. <laughs> we strategically almost insist on sitting in particular spots on an airplane. Kathy will give you money to sit by the window. You couldn't give me money to sit by the window. And even less so to sit in the middle. I'll give you money to sit on the aisle. And so if there's a three-row seat, which most of them are, we're perfectly comfortable sitting with somebody unawares in between us. And so we're getting cues from one another. This person doesn't know we're married. (laughs) We're not deceiving. Uh, it's just not something you say, oh, by the way, we're husband and wife, so uh, don't talk about him. Don't talk about her. <laughs> and so we are honing in, and I, can, I, know, I know immediately, uh, being available right now, you're not going to see that person again, statistically speaking, ever again. And so look for an opportunity to share Our only problem is stepping on one another while we're trying to share with that innocent victim in between us. Okay, so um, be available all the time. Secondly, and that's what Paul was. Secondly, be spiritually alert. If I'm going to be available, that means the antenna has to be up. We're going out to the pavilion after this uh, for fellowship. And there'll be others gathering us. I know there are some who are coming even at a later time this evening. They'll, they'll, they'll arrive at 7.30 or whatever it might be. Do you recognize that not every single soul out there necessarily is born again? Y- y'all following me? There may be lost people who gather. There may be someone here who is lost. Brother Zach, can you identify with that? For years and years. He shared testimony in January, I think it was. Sometime, maybe February, maybe March, whenever it was. April? Oh. <laughs> when you're in the go-go phase of life, that, that accompanies it. <laughs> of being lost for years and years and years, and yet being in worship services week in, week out. So be alert, like Paul was in Athens. Wasn't too difficult for him to be alert. Everyone was lost, seemingly. But be alert to that person who very well may not know the Lord. He was alert to souls. Notice, you say, where where do you get that? Look at verse 16. Again, verse 16. He waited for them. By the way, he, he waited, but he wasn't wasting time. His spirit was stirred when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. 
The word when he saw, you see it there in verse 16? In the Koine Greek New Testament, it's the word for theater. He was watching them like you watch the movie screen with actors portraying a certain uh, part in a, in a movie or in, in, or in a dramatic scene. That's the word. He was observing, carefully observing, what was going on in these lives. And his heart was stirred. He saw that God was being robbed of his glory and uh, ge- glory was being given to some type of idol, a stone, uh, uh, a, uh, uh, some kind of uh, carved image from the hands of man. He was spiritually alert. And then we have to recognize there has to be a willingness to stand alone. There will be times when you find yourself standing alone. Look at verse 22 in our text. Then Paul stood in the, by himself. He was the only one there. He was waiting for his buddies. There's no one else. Seemingly, there is no one else at this point on Mars Hill in Athens. But the Apostle Paul, and God gave us that so that we would have the same boldness. And look at the boldness that he had. In verse 23, you are worshiping, and you've even by your own testimony said to the unknown God, let me tell you who he is. I know him personally. He's real in my life. What audacity for someone 2,000 years ago in a city that was any old belief is just as good as another, for him to stand up and say, you all are wrong, and they were. But to have the boldness to say that in humility is an amazing thing. And they de- he declared Christ unto them. <clears throat> they told him that they worshiped the unknown God. And then verse 17, if you'll notice, it says that he disputed in the King James. It's literally the word dialogue. He reasoned with them. It wasn't a hostile attack. It was the exchange of ideas. He listened to them. And you're going to need to listen, and I'm going to need to listen to that lost person to know what his or her frame of reference is. Because you might have to start back with God is, and just demonstrating that there is a God who exists. Apologetics. Or that person may already have an understanding that God is, may even have a reverence for the Word of God, but doesn't know the truth of Scripture. That's how it was with me. When I was lost, I didn't, uh, I would never have shown disrespect to the Word of God. I I would never have uh, denied the existence of God. I just simply was ignorant of the way to God. And so, purpose to discern. As you're standing alone, what is it that you are needing to share. Yes, you're to earnestly contend for the faith, but that doesn't mean it's okay to be contentious. You cannot argue someone into heaven. Amen? You, can't, you cannot contend with that person and that person end up because the battle is not yours anyway. It's the Lord's. You're just on the witness stand. You don't have to convince anyone. You're just simply telling the things God has done for you. And Paul was telling them who he is and the difference he will make, the eternal difference 
he will make. And so, having the heart, uh, the passionate heart of the Apostle Paul, we see is critical. And then, you need to take into consideration the philosophical mind of the Athenians, or you could say the pagan mind or the uh, religious mind of the 21st century American, putting it into our context. And we see that in verses 18 through 21. And this is our culture. Um, Notice the immediate difference between a spirit-filled believer like Paul and the culture which is inundated with every kind of idea there is. It's a difference between knowing that God is or God might be and knowing him personally. Our God is knowable. Paul had that conviction, and we must also. So what, what should we consider about the philosophical mind of the Athenians or the religious mind of 21st century Americans? First of all, they believe they're, they're right. The lost are wise in their own eyes. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers up the Epicureans and of the Stoics. Two different groups of folks, both of whom could be characterized by Romans 1.22, professing themselves to be wise. Did I put wide there? They weren't wide. That's my bad, Chauncey, no blame on you. Uh, and I'm sure spell check didn't pick it up, because there are folks uh, in that day and our day who are too wide. And they'll admit it. (laughs) Wise, they became fools. The Epicureans were like that. Um, The Epicureans taught the truth that, uh, taught that truth was found through experience, not through reason. So they pursued, if I was still lost, and when I was lost, I was an Epicurean. Because what mattered was what was pleasurable, was what was comfortable, Uh, it was satisfying cravings, and the like. Not getting in trouble with the law, and because that would uh, curtail your ability to be an Epicurean. And most people want comfort. We want a temperature-controlled auditorium. Which, by the way, have you guys noticed in recent weeks... This auditorium uh, is not able to get very cool. Did, did anybody else notice that besides me? Um, our air conditioning system is 52 years running. Now, there isn't any such thing as AC that runs for 52 years. How did that happen? <laughs> what, Ray? Stewardship. And God's blessing applied to that, amen? Air conditioning systems don't run for 52 years anywhere. And ours has since 1971. That's a a totally uh, side point. The point is we like comfort. And I like comfort. Uh, And you do. Those were the Epicureans. Now, who were the Stoics? Stoics were the polar opposites. Their philosophy, Epicureans, was enjoy life. The Stoics was endure life. And so they were the ones who fanned the flames of pride by showing you how self-disciplined they could be. And they would discover truth through reason. We're going to figure this God thing out. 
and we'll get, we're going to take him to the laboratory, and we'll get back to you, on, and we'll give you a definitive answer. And so they poured themselves into that type of labor, of course, to no end, to no good end. Lost people figure they know the way. It, it's amazing to me when you talk to a lost person, and you know that lost person doesn't know the way of salvation, and yet the person will say to you with confidence, uh, God's going to, God is fair, and he's going to weigh, uh, uh, put, put my good things and my bad things in the balance, and whichever one of them uh, outweighs the other, then that's the way it's going to end up. And have confidence in that until you share the law of Moses how that you do not measure up even a little bit. And the person is convicted and turns to Christ in faith. And so, the lost are wise. Recognize that. They think that their way is correct or else they wouldn't hold to that. Secondly, the lost are willing to have their ears tickled. That is... They will be tolerant of all kinds of views. In fact, 2 Timothy 4, 3 says they long to have their ears tickled to give them something juicy to chew on other than orthodox theology that Jesus said. You see, the lost in our world and in that day, they're tolerant of everything except for truth and generally are intolerant of biblical truth. For you to say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. For you to say, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. For you to hold to that position and stand alone is not going to be tolerated. Everything else is tolerated. That's not tolerated. But that is the truth which sets one free. So therefore, how? That begs the question. Then how is anyone ever set free? The Lord moves upon that person by his spirit, pricks the heart, wakes him up to the reality of righteousness and judgment. And that person is made alive in Christ. That's the mechanism. But it demands that the truth be shared, that the seed be sown, so that there can ultimately be a harvest. Our American culture, <laughs> oh my, will our American culture accept anything as reasonable in our day? Anything anymore. It's almost, it doesn't even surprise me. It, it's dumbfounding that a man, a grown man, six foot two, with a, stru- a skeletal sy- a, a, a structure and muscles, and all, who says, I now want to identify with who I really am, i.e., the double X chromosome, and parade around that way, and truly even believe that to be the case, and then compete in women's sports and cry discrimination when anyone has a problem with that. Now, there's something wrong with our thinking, folks, as a culture. Well, 
One would, could almost argue that our culture is further down the road, further down the slippery slope to denial of reality than even was Athens. What do you do? You share the unadulterated, the undiluted living message of the gospel. Folks, it is the gospel alone which has the power unto salvation. That's all. It's only the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, faith in him, repentance from sin, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and you're born again. Only then is there freedom. And so I don't, I'm just not worried about talking an individual or our culture out of this or that or making sure that all the right laws are passed to be sure. I want the correct laws to be passed. I want righteous laws to be passed. That alone, it's not, nationalism doesn't save, right? Conservative America does not save a soul. Are we on the same page with this? And so we want Righteous laws, just laws to be passed and then to be enforced. But if we clean up the border, if we uh, have a constitutional amendment to uh, uh, end abortion for any cause, if we deny gender-changing surgeries and medication, all of that, if that's accomplished, not one soul is saved because of that apart from the gospel. Okay? Let's, let's, let's major on the majors. And the major is the gospel, the saving message of Christ. Next time is part two. For the rest of this narrative, I want to leave you with this. Jeremiah 9 and verse 24. Do this. Let him who glories, glory in this, that you understand and you know me, God said. That I am the Lord who has exercised loving kindness towards you. Justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. You have been saved from judgment to forgiveness. You've been rescued from condemnation unto liberty in Christ. You know the true and living God. Let's make him known all our days. Lord, I'm so thankful for this, your word. What a powerful text this is. This has been preached by so many people so many times, and yet I'm still convicted by it. I'm motivated by it. I'm inspired by it. I'm instructed by it and want to live it out in the here and now, in our generation. And so use us, Lord, cause our hearts to be passionate for the lost, to to be prepared, to be available in a moment's notice, to be alert to who the lost are around us, and to be willing to be persecuted by standing alone. If we're the only one in the workplace, only one in the classroom, only one in the neighborhood who stands for truth, may we do just that. May I do just that as your child so that you will delight in being glorified and just in telling the gospel glorifies you. Use us. Move in our hearts toward that end. 
Lord Jesus, in your wonderful, uh, compassionate, forgiving name, we do pray. And all God's people said,